Like it or not, Yeshua taught Hasidic Judaism before Hasidic Judaism was even a thing. If you hope to make a point, then you better rely upon primary and secondary sources and not YouTube theology. Did not Yeshua say Yeshuot v'yelachim is of the Yehudim? When Hashem says in Deuteronomy to listen to the rulings of the Sanhedrin or the penalty of death, I don't think he was kidding. If you're a sacred namer, a two-house theologian, a chirite, a one-Torah theologian, and you reject the rabbis and the sages, get ready to have your foundation be rocked. Ready, shalom and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Brutal Planet, right here on Yeshiva Radio. My name is Christopher Fredrickson. It's an honor and a pleasure to be with each and every single one of you here today as we delve into our next chapter of Dead Okay. Now, if you have the book, The Way of Life, The Rediscovering, the Rediscovered Teachings of the Jewish Apostles to the Gentiles by uh, Toby Janicki from First Fruits of Zion, you can go ahead and turn there in either the commentary section or within that of the, uh, of the translation section of Dead Okay, and we are going to get started. Now, we may not finish it today because um, unlike the previous chapters this is a much longer chapter and the chapters within Didache are actually very short you know it's a uh, 16 chapter uh, manuscript I believe it's 16 chapters let me double check that um, yes it's a 16 chapter manuscript but it's actually about the same size as the book of Galatians and as you can tell uh, Toby Janicki has put together some amazing Jewish commentary with the Didache. Um, and just in how thick this book is, you know, this is a, almost a 600-page book, as a matter of fact, that uh, goes through each of the things in here. So there's going to be many things that you find within the commentary if you don't have the book, uh, or if you do have the book, that it is that we don't discuss here today. Um, so, you know, if you want to go and research it out a little bit more fully, then I would encourage you to go and do so. So, let's go ahead and get started on uh, chapter 4, verse 1 of Didache. And it says, My child, remember night and day, the teacher who speaks the word of God to you, and esteem him as the Lord. For where lordship is spoken of, there the Lord is. Now, this is a concept that is deeply ingrained within that of Judaism. Okay? This concept... Actually, we end up finding within that a Perkeavot. Perkeavot is probably one of the most important tractates. Perkeavot uh, translates to Ethics of the Fathers. It's found within that of the Mishnah. Now, the funny thing is that within the Mishnah, usually you have the Mishnah section that is, trans, uh, that is, that is translated over to Talmud, where you have a Gemara section, a Tanya section, and all this stuff. With tractate Perkeavot, you actually don't have that. In fact, Berkeavot is said to stand upon its own merit. But then you have 
the Maharal of Prague during the time of the 16th century, who then goes and does a commentary upon that of Perkeavot, and is known as as uh, as uh, Der Chaim, the way of life. And so, the thing is that this is actually something that's mentioned within there. It says within Perkeavot. To acquire for yourself a rabbi as one who would acquire for himself a friend. And it says that this is, you know, one of the most important things to do. Now, this is also important in today's time, not just during the time of Yeshua, not just during the time predating the times of Yeshua. It's very important today. Look across the plethora of the believing community. You know, within that of the uh, uh, the biblical faith of Christianity, we have 35,000 different denominations. We also start to see these little splinter groups like that of the Hebrew Roots Movement, the Messianic Faith, and all these things. And you have people that say, you know what, I don't need a teacher, I don't need a rabbi. Uh, Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, goes and instructs me. And so the thing about it, though, is that they really go and take that entire concept out of its biblical context because what Ruach HaKodesh will lead you to truth, such as going and putting certain certain people within that of your life that will help you in terms of concepts that help you to mature. And it really speaks a great deal about kind of leading you to become Ger Toshav, to become a resident dweller among that of the Jewish people which was a common practice on the 50th year of the calendar year in the Hebrew calendar, this would be done. The gates of Israel would be opened up, and the people would go and come in as Ger Toshav for a year. There were certain mitzvahs that it is that they had to keep. There were certain ones that they didn't because they were kind of beginners, and this was kind of their process of seeing if this life is a life for them. You know, is is this life something that it is that... um that I want to go further in. Do I want to become a Gerzetic? Do I want to become a righteous Gentile? And then do I want to become full-on Yehudi? Do I want to be uh, to convert to Judaism? You know, and so this this entire idea is is something that's been around for quite a while. Now, the, the sad thing is that modern Hasidus and modern Orthodox Judaism really doesn't... Um, push the idea of conversion. Now, Judaism has never been an evangelical religion in any way, shape, or form. Never really has. But the thing about it, though, is that I've seen many people who have been part of their shul for you know quite a while, whether it be from that of Chabad or Breslev, and what they end up doing is they um, want to become a part of Israel. They want to graft themselves to the Jewish people. And sometimes they are hit with opposition simply because the fact that the rabbi or the elders or what have you don't want to put invest the time within that individual. Now the thing about this, I get questions about conversion all the time because many people know that it is that I converted. The thing about it though is that you can't just walk into a shul, be there for like a couple of weeks and say, oh yeah, I want to convert. Uh, that's not the way that, 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 that it works out because this entire premise that is found within here is a premise that we can relate to as believers in Yeshua, very much so, because 
the idea of somebody having a rabbi, they are a mirror reflection of their rabbi. They're a mirror re reflection of them. And the thing about it, though, is that if a person goes and just does something horrible, it's a reflection upon that of the rabbi and of their sect of belief. And this is why it is that, you know, people, uh, rabbis are very selective upon who it is that they choose to convert. So you need to be a part of a community for a very long period of time, and they have to know you in the community very well. They have to know your attributes. They have to know, you know, the kind of individual that it is that you are so they can say, you know what, can I invest four years in this person, you know, helping them along the way to convert? Can I, you know, trust that it is? that they are going to take the teachings and to put them into good light and they're going to fulfill mitzvahs and they're not doing it for lishma ha-Torah, uh, for the sake of the Torah. They need to do it for lishma Hashem, for the sake of God, is the reason why it is that they have to, you know, that's, the, that's one of the main things to look at. And so whenever I hear people ask about conversion, I always say, why is it that you want to convert? And some people say, well, I want to go to a higher mindraga, a higher level of observance. And the thing about it, though, is that's not good enough. That's not that's not a good enough reason to convert, you know. Um, and for me, the, the entire opportunity was a little bit different. And it was mainly because of the fact that the, uh, the rabbis I was studying with and all that stuff, they realized I was smart. <laughs> and they knew that it is that, you know, I, 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 first they approached me about it and I said, no, nah, I really don't want to convert. And they said, well, you know, you get to learn a little bit more. And I said, oh, well, that was kind of the carrot that they dangled in front of me. And so I ended up ultimately agreeing. And then when it came up again for my um, ordination, you know, basically the exact same instance. And so the thing about it, though, is that it's often said within Judaism that a person, if they go and they sin, that sin as well falls upon that of the rabbi. Now, also, the rabbi also has other obligations as well, other than to just teach. One of the things that you guys know that if you were a part of the congregation that we had here, which is be it Geulah or Melech Mashiach, which I was the rabbi of both of those, um, whenever it is somebody in the congregation needed you know, anything, even if it was like their house painted, I was the first person they called. If their car broke down in Boone, which had happened quite a few times to a couple of individuals, they would call me at 3 o'clock in the morning because they knew that it was the rabbi's job to be a servant unto them. And so this is a really serious thing when it comes down to this because there's a transference of not only just halakha, but also in the attributes of people, um, the, the rabbi and that of the Talmud, the, the student. You know, that's that that's that's a huge thing. So this is one of the things that is being talked about in Didache, and we can relate to it today. Again, I mentioned how it is that we have a bunch of people that says that say, I don't need a teacher for Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit goes and teaches me. And again, you know, we pointed out how they take that concept way out of uh, out of its context in many ways. But the thing is that one of the things that you ultimately end up seeing are all these splinter groups that happen. You have people that believe that the earth's flat. You have people that believe that you need to enunciate God's four-letter name and that you must do it one of the many dozen different ways that it is that people who don't know Hebrew come up with rather often. 
Uh, you also have, you know, all of these, all of these divisions in terms of zitziot. You know, who's to wear zitziot, who's not to wear zitziot. You know, do we take it literally when it says Bnei Yisrael as opposed to Banot Yisrael? And the thing about it, though, is that when you are so far removed from the Hashkafa, from the worldview of the first century, halfway across the world, and you try and make it up as you go along in the 21st century, you're going to come into many different problems, dealing with things like idiomatic expression and all these other things. And that's why it is that within Lapid Judaism, and, you know, sadly, I'm the only Lapid Jewish rabbi in the United States, you know, it, now in terms of the Lapid movement, which is a bit of a, that's just a splinter group that, that, that it's not even worth talking about in all honesty. It's like Lapid Judaism light. <coughs> I think they have like one guy in Texas that uh, doesn't know Hebrew, never went to yeshiva, got his rabbinic license from his own 501c3. You know, that's, <laughs> it, it was one of those whole deals, you know, but the thing about it though, is that what happens is a person has to have a competent teacher because that competent teacher who has, you know, been to yeshiva school, who has been a part of a community, been a part of leading a shul, leading a synagogue and all that stuff is going to guard them against bad ideology. They're not going to throw them head first into total observance of the Torah, which you see happening a great deal with these Hebrew roots uh, fringe groups, you know, that advocate one Torah and two house theology and all these things. Um, you're not going to come in contact with the, with those things. You know, you are going to make sure that you get the scholarship and the, uh, and, and the hard work, you know, that's going to be something that's going to be transferred over to you is that hard work that it is that your rabbi put in. And so this is something that's that's very, very, very important. Verse 2 of chapter 4, it says, And every day seek the, the, uh, the presence of righteousness so that you may lean upon their words. Okay? Now, here's the interesting thing. The word for righteousness is the word zadik. Okay? which is also the the word for a person who's righteous. But within the word zedacha, which is the word for charity, we have the word sadek. Okay? And it says and every day to seek the presence of righteousness. And this is something there's a reason why it is the word for charity is zedacha. And that and the reason is because of the fact that a person must be devoid of themselves. They must be devoid of their own egotism. They need to be devoid of their own uh, self-propelled building themselves up. You know, Yeshua goes and warns us about this within Matthew chapter 23, a great deal. And so this is important. You know, so when you see the word sadik or righteous, you know, you have to have that in relation to a person who's humble and devoid of self. Because of the fact, you know, I can give you one one example. I attended a uh, an online yeshiva once. I uh, was dating a lady who was wanting to go through the yeshiva, and I went and I, you know, paid her way to get into it. And um, basically, what ended up happening was she was having some issues. And so I said, okay, I'll tell you what. 
I'll go and sign up as well. I'll go and take the course with you. And uh, we'll go and we'll go and do this together. We'll we'll go through it together. And the issue that kept popping up was we would see students of this particular online yeshiva, and it wasn't cheap to be a part of this yeshiva. You know, to 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 do the full year was a thousand dollars. And the thing is that you would see people dropping off. You know, all the time. You just like where'd they go? You never see them again. You know, did they just get bored? You know, what what would happen? And we found out later that ultimately what ended up happening was um, the guy that was the head, and I believe still is the head, of this particular online yeshiva would get upset when somebody knew a little bit more than he did or questioned something that he couldn't answer. And that egotism of him caused him to go and boot people, you know, that paid $1,000 to be a part of his online yeshiva and all this stuff and it did great harm to those individuals you know when things like that had had happened you know and so the thing about it though is that what we have here is an individual who is very smart you know as a teacher and all that stuff but his egotism very much gets in the way from him being able to progress further and to help others and so you know this is something that we have to keep in mind Let us go to verse 3 of chapter 4. Do not crave conflict, but bring those who are quarreling to peace, or to peaceful reconciliation. Let me go and read that whole line again. Do not crave conflict, but bring those who are quarreling to peaceful reconciliation. Judge righteously. Do not show partiality when rebuking transgressions. Okay? Within the Torah, we have this concept of equal weights and measures. You know, we don't show favoritism in terms of somebody because of the fact that they are, are our friend, you know, or because of the fact that we agree with their ideology. One of the things that you guys can attest to that have listened to this program or watched the video version of these teachings, you guys can attest to this. What is one of the things that I always end up saying? That is to... Surround yourself with those that you don't necessarily agree with because they're going to be the ones that you learn the most from. You guys have heard me say that quite a few times, right? And the reason for this is because of the fact that there is a three-dimensional model that is at work. For instance, in the Talmud, we have these rabbis bickering and saying, how many correct interpretations are there to each and every single line of Torah law? One says, there's two. Another one stands up and says, what, you are, are you an idiot? There's seven. And then another one goes and says, man, you guys are all mad. It's 32. 32 correct interpretations to each and every single line of Torah. Rabbi Akiva goes and stands up and he says, enough. There's an unlimited amount based upon what the Bachol, the voice from heaven, or Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, wishes to show you at that time. This is one of the things that we got to understand because the reason why this phrase is within here is because you have a lot of things going on within the Jewish world during the times of the apostles. A lot of things going on. And what's happening during this time is that you have these groups. You have not only the Jewish groups within the, very, the five sects of Pharisee, but you also have the Sadducees, you have the Essenes, but then you have outside groups such as converts, 
And then you have uh, uh, Bnei Avraham or Ger Toshav. You know, you have uh, those who keep the laws of Bnei Noach, you know, the, the beginning, you know, of these of these whole things. And we see within the words of Paul, and as a matter of fact, I got several books here that may be helpful for you guys in terms of, you know, understanding more things in terms of the first century. And let me just go ahead and take a break real quick and show you, you know, some of these that will really help you out. Uh, one of the guys I really rely on is a guy that I've talked to many times at, at SBL and ETS. It's Dr. Mark Nanos with the uh, uh, University of Kansas, and this is his book, Paul Within Judaism, Restoring the First Century Context to the Apostles. Another one, and I, I believe I've spoken with this gentleman at SBL as well, is Dr. Mark Kinzer, post-messianic, uh, uh, post-missionary messianic Judaism, uh, redefining Christian engagement with the Jewish people. Okay, uh, another one of Dr. Mark Nanos's books, uh, the mystery of the Book of Romans, as well. This is kind of his swan song, as a matter of fact. That one, you know, that's just a good commentary. Uh, and this is where actually where uh, he got his idea for the entire. Um, Paul within Judaism, where Dr. Mark Nanos got that, is from um, actually a book that was built upon this one. I got my other book loaned out to a to a buddy of mine, which is called um, Paul and Palestinian Judaism by e, by E. P. Sanders. But this is the one that kind of followed up and said this is what Sanders's theology is, which is the new perspective on Paul put out by James Dunn. Um, and so Paul within Judaism is kind of built upon this concept from this book that was written in the 70s. Uh, we also got D. Thomas Lancaster's book. Now, this is a layman's version of maybe like all those books put put together. Um, he goes through the history and all that stuff, many of the things that are going on within the Jewish world within his commentary on Galatians. So it's called The Holy Epistle to the Galatians by D. Thomas Lancaster. It's a great book. You can actually get this one on ebook as well. I don't believe any of Dr. Nanos's books are on e or in ebook or not. I'm not really sure. But uh, you know, this is one of the struggles that was going on here. And so what would ultimately end up happening is there would be these battles of, you know, we're right, everybody else is wrong, you know, and they get stuck in these positions. Now, the thing that the apostles are trying to show here is that first of all, you shouldn't be stuck right there. You shouldn't be doing that. You need to be surrounding yourself with people who think differently than, than you, who maybe are a little bit more advanced than you. And when you get into this concept of the humility that comes from righteousness within that verse too, we then see the follow-up is don't crave conflict. And those who are quarreling, you know, bring them to peaceful reconciliation. And the thing about it, though is that the egotist will constantly try and start quarreling. Tr constantly try and start dissension among the body of believers. You know, I'm right, you're wrong. That's the end of the story. You know, it's kind of the way that they that they operate. You know, and so the thing about it though is that we're not to be this way because if we become this way, and we start to become you know very self righteous and we, we're constantly wanting to conflict with one another, then the fact is that first of all we can never have shalom. You're not going to have shalom within that of your marriage. You're not going to have shalom within that of even your your uh, observance of mitzvahs, your observance of the commandments of God. You're not going to have that peace with God if it is that you are quarreling 
among your brother. It's just not going to happen. At times, we just got to sit there and say to ourselves, you know what? <laughs> this person sees things a little bit goofy, but you know what? He's still my brother. I love him anyway, you know? And not try and convince them through intellectualism that they're wrong, unless it is that they ask, unless it is that they are at a point to where it is that they say, you know what? I think this, and I have all this evidence to back this up. But I want to see what it is that you say. Too too often, you know, I, I saw something on social media a couple of days. They said that one of the hardest things about keeping kosher is inserting it into every conversation. <laughs> and that's one of the things that we ultimately end up seeing. You know, we get zealous about our halakha. We get zealous about the way that it is that we do things. And the thing about it, though, is that the, the, the person who may be a little bit immature tries to push their you know, new understanding, you know, no matter how flawed that it is at the time upon everybody else, you know, and say, you know, that we all need to be like this. You know, we all need to be doing things the way that it is that I do them. But the fact is that we need to really do a better job of peaceful reconciliation and not looking to, and I think the modern word is trolls, not be trolls. You know, we need to, you know, seek shalom above all else. You know, there's been many instances where it is that I've wanted to, uh, you know, I, 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 I would get upset, you know, over something, you know, that had happened to me or, you know, something that was said about me or, you know, just instances in my life. But the thing about it, though, is that at times I realize that, first of all, I need to be seeking shalom in everything, finding, finding reconciliation, peace, peaceful reconciliation through all the things that bother me in my life, you know, what other people have done, you know, and all that stuff. And so, you know, the thing about it, though, is that's the way to, to live life. Because ultimately what that does is it softens the heart. It softens the heart, and it helps us to become more susceptible to God, helps us to be able to be molded in the way that God wants us to be. The hardened heart is unable to do it. But the thing about it, though, is that when we sit there and we say to ourselves, you know what, it doesn't hurt that bad to be wrong. In fact, it kind of feels good to be wrong because I get a little bit more, you know, chokmah, a little bit more wisdom by being wrong than it is by being validated. You know, when we get to that point, you know, it's one of the things that really helps us out within that of our walk. Uh, do not be indecisive as to whether or not your judgment is correct. You know, within verse 3 and verse 4 here, we see this attribute of judgment that's talked about. Now, many people don't know about how it is that judgment was ruled out by the Sanhedrin. Many people don't, don't, don't know this history. You know, you could think of, you know, uh, you guys remember the O.J. Simpson trial, for instance. You know, O.J. had the dream team. And then you had the state prosecutors, you know, with Marsha Clark and Christopher Darden. And all this stuff, it, it was almost like having, you know, uh, Charles Barkley, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird go up against, you know, uh, two random college students. You know, that's the way court cases, you know, that's the way that court case kind of played out in many ways. But the thing is that within Judaism and within that of the cases that are brought to bring judgment, 
it's very interesting how it plays out. And I almost say to myself, this is the way that we should do it in our own American courts, if you ask me. That basically what happens is that within the Sanhedrin, you have all the members of the Sanhedrin and you have a couple of judges. They're sitting there. And so what happens is they're split right down the middle. And they say, okay, you argue on this position. And then the, the other half, you go and argue on this position. You know, say that it is that a person's being tried for murder or whether it's a halakhic decision. You know, how long should Arzizio be? You know, and all that stuff. You know, and, and the Sanhedrin covered all these. And so what happens is you would have one half go and argue one way, then the other half go and argue the other way. Split right down the middle. Doesn't matter what they personally believed or not. Doesn't matter in terms of what their bias and judgment would ultimately be, be based upon their sect. They were required to argue this and then that. And then halfway through, what happens is they say, okay, the judges say switch positions. And so the thing about it, though, is that the smartest person in the room is going to be on both sides of the argument. And also, another thing that ultimately ends up happening is that when somebody goes and takes somebody before the Sanhedrin and say, they did this to me, you know, or, or, or what have you, they say, okay, what do you think the judgment should be? And they go and they say, well, you know, here's what I think, you know, their judgment should be if they're found guilty. Now, let's say that it is the person's found innocent. The person who brought them to trial then gets the judgment which it is that they want to divvy out to the other person upon that of themselves. Okay? And so the thing about it, though, is that this is, you know, in many ways helps us to be impartial in judgment and making, you know, um, uh, you know, giving judge, judgment on all, on all these things and them being indecisive, as they end up saying here. Because our partiality can get in the way, especially in modern times when there's not a Sanhedrin. So this becomes very hard today. Now, at the time of the disciples, however, when this was written, uh, the temple was still standing. The Sanhedrin was still reigning. But it wasn't reigning for only but a, another 20 years or so. And so the thing about it, though, is that this was almost something that they saw coming in many ways. They kind of saw this coming in the fact that it is that at times we would have to render decisions based upon theological matters in our own ways that are outside of that of Mishnah, outside of Shulchan Aruch, you know, in terms of those rulings and how it is that we should go about doing things. And because there would be new inventions, you know, today we have cell phones, today it is we have television, electricity. How is it that we go about fulfilling mitzvahs of Shabbos, for instance, with these technologies? Is it okay to go and use your cell phone on Shabbos? Some sects say yes, based upon the, um, the influencers of, of that particular sect in modern day times, but none of those things are binding. So in many ways, there is, you know, decisions and judgments that have to be rendered upon ourselves as well through that of our of our own, you know, um, halakha. And so this is important. You know, the word of God is very important. And so the thing about it, though, is that we need to treat it with care. We need to treat it with honor. Uh, do not be one who stretches out his hands to receive 
but puts them back in regard to giving. You know, it also says, we mentioned Perkea vote before. It says in there, be not like servants who serve their master for the sake of receiving a reward. Instead, be like servants who don't serve their master for the sake of receiving a reward, and may the awe of heaven be upon you. And this just goes back to that entire idea of Zadok and, and Zadokah. Here's another instance. When people would go into the Ba'is HaGmikdash, the holy temple, when they would go in during the times of Yeshua and the times before, there would be a basket in there that was basically worked as what we call today a Zadokah box, or those within Christianity called the offering plate. And what would end up happening is a person would go in one at a time. And those who gave would go and give, you know, whatever it is. And there were no, you know, 501c3 tax write-offs or any of these. It, I mean, it was actual Zedekah. It was, it, was, it was actual charity. You know, there was no uh, worldly monetary benefit for going and doing these things. You know, they didn't write them off on their taxes or anything. And so, and nobody knew who gave what. There was nobody who knew. But then there were people who were in need. They were all, would also be in the same line. And the person who was in need would also go through the line and take what it is that they needed. And the thing is that you go and you look at this concept here, and we say to ourselves, how much is it that we lack in terms of this idea of Zedekah? You know, many people want to support what it is that we do because they like the radio show. They want to support what it is that we do because of the resources on the um, on the uh, on the website lapidjudaism.com. and that's what people are accustomed to. They're they're accustomed to infrastructure. They're accustomed to you know all of these things. But I you know in all honesty, I say you know what it's better to give your zedekah to the person who is in your community who probably doesn't have anything to eat. It's probably better for you to go and help individuals like that within your community, the widows, the orphans, the, um, the individuals who visit the local soup kitchens, those who it is that are at a rough time in their life, people that it is that you know personally. It is better to help those individuals than it is some, you know, building wherever it is that people meet. It's uh, better than, you know, uh, say, for instance, you know, the website that we run, lapidjudaism.com, you know, because <coughs> in all honesty, the thing with things like that is that the kingdom is not advanced by, you know, you guys thinking I'm smart. You guys enjoying what it is that I say. You guys, you know, going and, um, you know, learning learning these things that it is that we talk about. That's not how it is that the kingdom is advanced. The way that the kingdom is advanced is what it is that we apply. That's what it's about. That's ultimately what it's about. Uh, verse 6. If you have the means, give a ransom for your sins. You know, this is something that I think, in many ways, a concept that the Catholics really take 
out of um, really take out of context. And the, and this is going to be a little bit of a segue into Aramaic primacy in many ways. You guys all know the story about the rich man who uh, came before Yeshua. And Yeshua goes and says, you know, go and sell all your stuff and then you can go and follow me. And uh, most translations, about 99.9% of translations say it is harder for a rich man to get into heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, this is a concept that really doesn't make much sense because many people speculate and say, okay, well, there was this place called the eye of a needle and it was so low that the camel had to hump, had to hunch down to get through and all this stuff. And then the follow-up question should usually be, do we have archaeological records of such a place or any sort of textual reference from primary or secondary sources that such a place existed? And the fact is we don't. There's no indication that any place had ever existed, nothing even in in folklore during, during the time. This idea was just a modern invention that somebody had cooked up saying that something existed at the time that it didn't, <laughs> you know? And so the thing is that within the Aramaic there, you have the word Gamal and the word Gamala. Now, within that of the Kaboris Codex, you don't have what is called Nakud, okay? What is Nakud? Nakud are, it, it, it technically means punct punctuation. And it's the little dots and dashes that are above, below, or inside of letters within that of Hebrew and Aramaic. In Aramaic, they're mainly above the letters. And so there could be various ways these things could be rendered because they also render vowels as well. And the thing about it, though, is that when you don't have those things, you have to give your best guess. Well, within the Kaboris Codex, we, we have a choice between the word gamal for camel or gamala for that of heavy rope. Now, here's the thing that's interesting is that can a heavy rope fit through an eye of a needle? Well, yes, it can. But you have to take it one strand at a time and feed it through the eye of a needle, basically meaning to slowly unravel your wealth. You know, and this is one of the things that we end up seeing with Nicodemus, as a matter of fact. You know, there's a lot of history in terms of Nicodemus that people don't realize. Uh, Nicodemus has actually talked about a great deal within that of the Talmud. And he's talked about as this very wealthy and rich Pharisee who basically he went and, you know, would constantly, you know, say, you know, hey, anybody who needs food, you know, to the local butchers and all that stuff, and they don't have enough, you know, I'll pay you for whatever it is they need each and every single day. He he paid for additions to the holy temple and didn't want anybody to know. You know, this is what it is that he did. He he was that guy, you know, and this is how it is that Nicodemus was. And so the thing about it, though, is that in many ways, our own ego and haughtiness translates over to sin. So trying to hoard things for ourselves, in many ways does translate into sin, you know, because of the fact that we get so accustomed to creature comforts and all these other things, as opposed to the Olam Haba, the world to come, the Machut uh, Hashemayim, the kingdom of God. You know, we, we, we fail to really, you know, make that connection. Um, going to do one more verse here, and then we're going to go ahead and end. Do not hesitate to give, and do not complain when giving, for you will find out who is uh, the good 
payer of wages. Thing we have to realize, everything comes from Hashem. I can give you an instance to where I remember this was several years ago, several, several years ago. I was out of work for like three months. And you know when it is they, you know, you have you have bills to pay. That's very stressful. <laughs> and so I was going around filling out applications everywhere. And there was this uh, place that was just opening up, little Japanese place that I still go to on occasion. And uh, it was called Kin to Kin. And so I was one of two wait staff that they hired over there. Now, keep in mind, this place is right by the movie theater. Okay? This big multiplex movie theater that they built in downtown Morganton. And so the thing is that I uh, ended up, you know, uh, going to be one of two wait staff over there. And plus, I'm not familiar with sushi. I'm not familiar with the difference between hibachi and teriyaki and all these other stuff. I try to learn by, you know... Studying the menu, try to memorize the menu and all that stuff. Memorization is not one of my big things. But the thing about it, though, is that because of the cultural differences, if you know what I mean, from my bosses and the other workers over there and all that stuff, it, it was just very hard and very different to me. You know, I felt like a fish out of water. And I ultimately ended up hating the job after a couple of days. I said, it's going to take me a little while to get my footing, you know, but that's, you know, that's, that's normal. And then what ultimately ended up happening is I was leaving one night. I think I made about 80 bucks in tips that night. And I was leaving and I said, okay, before I go home, I'm going to sit in my car. I'm going to pray. I'm going to thank Hashem for giving me this job. Even though I hate it, I'm going to thank him for giving me this job. And so I ended up doing that and praying to God for about five minutes and saying, you know what, this is not the way that I wanted it to play out, but God, I thank you for giving me this job so I'm able to pay my bills, so I'm able to do the things that it is that I need to do. Thank you, thank you, Lord. Thank you for doing this. And then what ultimately ended up happening was the very next day, it's like, Everything changed. Everything changed. I realized that everything was from Hashem. And the thing is that the job got incredibly easier. In fact, when I go in there now, when I go in there now and order my hibachi steak, one of the things that the wait staff even tells me, and they said, you were one of the first waiters over here, weren't you? Your name's Christopher, isn't it? And I said, yeah, yeah. And they say, you know what? My boss over here, Shoye, yeah, 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 I know Shoye. Shoye is my buddy. And they say, he always says that he wishes we were as good as you as you were, <laughs> you know, which is something that just kind of changed just totally overnight, totally overnight. And so it's one of those things by realizing that everything comes from God, everything. So when it comes to our income, when it comes to the things that it is that we are blessed with me just having this glass of water right here. Just, you know, this, this very thing. Say Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. You know, for allowing me to have this, allowing me to take a breath, allowing me to be able to wake up this morning and to do this radio program for you guys. The most simplistic of things, for some reason... We fail 
to thank Hashem. We fail to do it. And it's something that it is that we need to start doing a better job of. No matter what your faith is, no matter if you're, you know, advancing yourself within Judaism, whether it is you're in Christianity, whether it is that you're a part of the Hebrew Roots movement or the Messianic faith, it doesn't matter. One of the things that we need to do, do a better job of, is showing gratitude towards the creator of heaven and earth. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope and I pray that this teaching here today has been a blessing to you, and I hope and I pray that it has been helpful to you. And I want to wish each and every single one of you Shalom Brocha. Peace and a blessing. Shalom. So you want to learn Hebrew or Aramaic, or maybe both? Make sure to check out HebrewandAramaic.com. All three of the instructors on the website have accredited Moray licenses to teach the languages that they teach on the website. You can take the lessons on your very own time, and they even have a Roku channel so you can learn from the comfort of your very own couch. With over 200 videos going step-by-step -step through the languages and all the various scripts and over 100 PDFs of exercises and quizzes, this is the most thorough set of lessons that you'll find anywhere on the languages of the Tanakh and the Brit Hadashah. So visit HebrewAndAramaic.com today and sign up for only $15 a month.